I see all that now in my imagination. And the ball goes dead straight every time. And pure. Pure and straight in a, in a very simple way. The ball goes dead straight every time. We love debates in golf, and there are plenty you could waste hours on. Greatest player, Tiger or Jack, most impressive feat, Nicholas's 18 majors or Woods' four straight. The list goes on. St. Andrews versus Augusta, Sorenstam versus Mickey Wright. And then there's this one, the greatest ball striker who ever lived. Some might say Woods, others would argue Ben Hogan, but those who saw him firsthand would swear they all run a distant second to Mo Norman. Yes, Mo Norman, one-time Canadian tour pro, winner of, well, actually nothing you would have heard of. And yet, on the very short list of people who could hit a golf ball exactly where they wanted, Mo Norman might well rank right at the top. So who is Mo Norman? And if he was as good as people say he was, why is he a mere historical footnote in golf? The answer, like Norman himself, requires explanation. I'm Alex Myers, and this is Local Knowledge, where we take a deeper dive into some of golf's most compelling stories. On this episode, we'll look at the life and career of Mo Norman, one of the game's most enigmatic figures, who by all accounts could play golf about as well as anyone, but whose unique nature held him back from glory. We'll talk to people who knew Norman and saw firsthand what set him apart as a ball striker and as a man. We'll revisit his singular career, including the series of events that prevented him from wider recognition in this country. And we'll learn more about Norman's psychological makeup to understand why someone who is a true genius in one aspect of life still struggled with simple everyday tasks. When you talk about Mo Norman, you're talking about a legend. And I'm talking about a living legend because the public doesn't know Mo Norman. He's a legend with the professionals. Perhaps it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that one of the game's most unusual figures didn't have a typical tour pro upbringing. Murray Irwin Norman, better known as Mo, was born in 1929 in Kitchener, Canada, an industrial city in the province of Ontario. His family didn't have much money. His first two golf clubs, a tree branch followed by a hockey stick. After getting a caddying gig at 12, Norman bought his first real golf club, an old five iron, from a member. If money was one obstacle to a career in golf, so was the stigma of the game itself. Norman's father made fun of him for playing the sport, causing Norman to hide his golf clubs under the porch at night. But during the days, he taught himself how to swing a golf club, and along the way, he invented an entirely new way of doing it. That was what really made me, made me appreciate what Mo had done as he, as he invented this himself. You know, you hit one bad shot, and you go, oh, you think, oh, this sucks. That's David Owen, one of the, a Golf the Digest contributing was, writer who profiled uh, Norman the, for a 1995 cover story. You know, I think he had figured it out that this was the right thing to do, and he had to work at it for a long time to get it right. But just the, the thought of enduring all the missed, missed shots and all the looks that you'd get from other people uh, until, he, until, as he said, he had it trapped. As Owen detailed, Norman grooved that unusual swing in a field filled with high grass near his house focusing on accuracy to keep from losing his small but precious collection of battered golf balls. It was his penchant for hitting it straight that eventually earned him the nickname Pipeline Mo. Although, as Owen found out during a round with a 65-year-old Mo, 
Mo's accuracy didn't mean he always aimed right down the middle. The first hole is a dog leg to the right, and there's, uh, to the right side of the fairway, there's a line of trees, and then there's this little strip of rough, and then there's water. And so three of us tee off, we hit ball up the fairway, and the th you, you kind of hit it up to the dog leg, and then you've got maybe a five iron into the green. And then Mo gets up, and he hits his drive straight into the trees, over the trees. And I thought, oh, this is great, Mo, Mo Norman. And, um, but it turned out that he, there's this little strip of grass over there, it's like maybe 10 yards wide. That's where his ball ended up. He, he had a nine iron into the same green. And, uh, you know, Maui said, well, that's just that's the way he plays the hole. But, you know, you couldn't do it yourself because you, you, no way you could be that accurate. But Mo was. In fact, the stories of his accuracy are so incredible they border on mythical. Like the time he purposely hit a drive that rolled across a bridge during an exhibition match with Sam Snead. Or the time he hit 131 consecutive drivers on the range without having to readjust his tee. Or the time he hit the flagstick with approach shots six times in one round for $100 a pop while gambling with fellow Canadian tour pro George Knudsen. To see somebody hit drivers out of pitching wedge divots and have them look exactly like the drivers he hit off the tee or four irons out of pitching wedge divots, really, uh, really kind of incredible. Tiger Woods once said, only two players have ever truly owned their swings. Mo Norman and Ben Hogan. But why did the latter win nine major championships while the former's biggest victories all came in Canada? How is it possible that someone with such command of the golf ball never won a Masters or never even competed in a U.S. Open where accuracy is rewarded above all? The answer lies less in how Mo constructed his swing and more in how Mo himself was wired. I'm way different. I'm in a different world. I'm way up there looking down. I hit my position so well. Oh, just like a pressing a button. Just like a machine. What made Mo so different? There's a theory that a sledding accident as a child caused a head injury, but most who knew him insist he had autism. He was never formally diagnosed, but in 1988, when the movie Rain Man came out, those who knew Norman began to make a connection. Gus and Audrey Maui, a Canadian couple that supported Norman throughout much of his adult life, recognized their friend in Dustin Hoffman's character, Ray Babbitt. Like Ray, Mo had a knack for numbers and an incredible memory, recalling the hole-by-hole -hole yardages from hundreds of courses he played throughout his life. How'd you do that? How'd you do that? I don't know. You memorize the whole book? No. You start from the beginning? Yeah. How far'd you get? G. G? G. God's sake, William Marsh. God's sake. You memorized to G. Yeah, G. Ray Babbitt may have been a fictional character, but there are cases of savants like him in real life, including the man Babbitt was based on, Kim Peek. People with developmental disabilities who still showcase prodigious talents. In music, for instance, Rex Lewis Clack was born blind and with brain damage that manifested in autistic symptoms. Yet his incredible piano playing ability caused CBS's 60 Minutes to profile him twice as a kid. But with everything Rex couldn't do, he could do this. We played him a song he had never heard with his old piano teacher singing along. Remember, he can't see the keys. Rex is a musical savant. According to the CDC, autism affects one in 54 children in the United States. 
But those effects are wide-ranging, which is why people are described as being on a spectrum. Typical characteristics of autism include trouble communicating, repetitive behavior, displaying unusual interest in certain things, and tending to overreact to certain senses. All of these applied to Mo, who wasn't comfortable in social settings and didn't like to be touched. Autism would also explain Mo's obsessive behavior when it came to practicing his swing. It's possible that no one in history, not even Ben Hogan, who was known for digging his secret out of the dirt through countless hours on the range, hit as many golf balls as Mo Norman. It didn't come to me. I had, I had to work. I worked. I got off this thing. The other guys were playing cards, pouring rain. I was out there. Here's my shirt. I'm rinsing and hitting again. There's blood coming down my hands. That's how much I liked it when I was a kid. Even though it wasn't a, a sport like it is today, I did because I liked to sit in the bunkers. That's, that's the thrill I got out of it, was to be able to hit nice, pure shots in such a simple way that I was, I was like a part of it. I was attached to my golf shots. I was. I still am. I'm still a, I'm go, when I hit a ball, I feel I'm going with it. It's pulling me to happiness, and it does. David Owen relayed a story that shows just how much Mo was pulled towards practicing. Maui talked about one time he was taking Mo to play in a tournament, and as they walked to the, as they walked to the registration tent or the first tee, they passed the driving range, and the driving range had those little, you know, those little pyramids of brand new range balls stacked up, and Mo Mo saw him out of the corner of his eye, and he looked at him. He didn't want to play in the tournament; he wanted to go hit those balls. Which is not to say Norman didn't win; he did a lot. Mo still boasted an incredible on-course resume that speaks to both his dominance and longevity. He was a two-time Canadian amateur winner and a two-time Canadian PGA Championship winner. He won a record 55 Canadian Tour titles. And after turning 50, he won seven consecutive Canadian PGA Seniors Championships. He also set 33 course records, fired three 59s, and is a member of both the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame and Canada's Sports Hall of Fame. He was he was uh, an amazing an amazing guy, and I think the way to, to look at it is not to think what could have been, but to be just astonished by by what actually was. Norman's noticeable quirks were with him since he was a kid. Most notably, he talked in a high pitched voice and often repeated what he said. While Norman became confident hitting golf balls in front of people, he struggled to fit in socially away from the range. In a 2004 Golf Digest My Shot interview, shortly before he died of a heart attack at 75, Norman said he never owned a phone and only went on three dates in his life. If I'd gotten married, it wouldn't have been fair to a wife because of my life as a golfer, Norman said in that interview with Golf Digest Guy Yoakum. I'd wind up divorced and then she'd get everything. I think that's how it works, judging by what's happened to some friends of mine. I'm very happy being alone. He had little going on off the course, and since he played predominantly on the Canadian tour and long before today's era of big purses, he had little money in his pockets. Before he turned pro, he held low-paying odd jobs, like setting pins in a bowling alley. I mean, he lived out of the trunk of his car. It, there was a time when he was playing in events in Canada. He would he would sleep in the bunker on a golf course where he was going to play. He he would he was <laughs> some, he would. Call, you know, like call in sick to his crummy job, and then he would go and uh, play in a tournament, and his picture would be in the paper, and his boss would see, oh, you weren't sick, you're playing his paper. So he was, I mean, he was constantly, uh, you know, losing jobs and getting crummy jobs and, and living out of his car. You know, he was 
he was broke. I mean, literally broke, and just trying to trying to scrape up money from doing little exhibitions. Two hundred thirty yard forward. See, I'm the only golfer that plays by height. That's the way I play golf, by height. <clears throat> Here's 20 feet high. Right on. Right smack on. <clears throat> now 40. Now I won't do it as much, just hit it dead straight. But 250. Before turning pro at 27, Norman also made money as an amateur by selling the tournament prizes, like a new TV or refrigerator, something that got him in trouble with the Royal Canadian Golf Association. Sometimes Norman even arranged these sales before the event began because he was so confident in his ability. And on at least five occasions, Norman finished runner-up on purpose because his customers wanted the second place prize instead. Things didn't come quite as easy in two brief PGA Tour stints when he played in eight events in both 1959 and 1960. In 27 total PGA Tour starts, Norman made 20 cuts, had seven top 25 finishes, and one top 10. Perhaps playing on the PGA Tour consistently would have helped, but he felt like an outsider and was intimidated by stars like Sam Snead and Arnold Palmer. So when those guys would say things to him, to Mo, he would feel like, well, this is my peer talking to me. This is somebody I admire. I should listen to them. When in essence, he shouldn't have listened to them at all. He should have just done his own thing and been Mo, but, but he was intimidated by those guys. That's Mo's longtime friend and mentee, Todd Graves, who has also spoken to many people from Norman's life for an upcoming documentary on the golfer. As it happens, Barry Morrow, who wrote the story and co-wrote the screenplay for Rain Man, is another producer. Had that Oscar-winning film come out earlier, perhaps Mo would have been treated differently. But golf has always been a conservative culture, especially then which is why Norman's behavior made him an outsider. He would entertain fans by hitting tee shots off Coke bottles and played so fast he was often scolded by officials to slow down. At his first of two Masters appearances, Mo hit his opening tee shot while he was still being announced by the starter. And once with a three-shot lead on the final hole of the Saskatchewan Open, Norman purposely putted off the green and into a bunker before getting up and down to preserve the win. Teased often as a kid for being different, Mo remained a target as an adult. Although Mo never wanted to divulge the details, his friends Gus Maui told Owen that Mo's heart was broken by one particular encounter with a group of PGA Tour pros in New Orleans, in which the Canadian was criticized for his soda-stained teeth, his ill-fitting clothes, and his style of play. It was the final straw. Norman returned to the more comfortable confines of Canada, and other than home games at the Canadian Open, where he never missed a cut in 10 tries, he never made another PGA Tour start. He, he wasn't going to go back, you know. That was it. He wasn't going to endure that again. And he didn't. He, he, didn't, he didn't do it again. But he could have. There would be no reason, no uh, mechanical reason why he couldn't, or, or mental reason, to do with golf that he wouldn't have been able to, right. to have a, a real PGA Tour career. Right. But it was, uh, you know, it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't what he was used to, and he needed, he needed that environment. Lee Trevino, also considered one of the game's great ball strikers, said in a television interview that the lack of support from Norman's peers made all the difference. If someone would have taken Mo under their wing, and I think that if, if they would have taken uh, Mo and said, look, we're going to go play here, and, and, and don't be afraid, 
there is no telling what Mo Norman would have won. I think he would have won the U.S. Open. I think he would have won all the tournaments around the world. I mean, he is that good, and he's still that good. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. There's a 250-yard pole at the end of the range, and it was, you know, it was about maybe a four or five-inch metal pole, and then it had a little number on the top of it. And you would hear the, you'd hear the ball ding <laughs> off the pole, you know. And it was just one of those things where I guess you had to witness it. You know, you had to see it, you know, yourself. And and having seen that, I was like, wow. As with David Owen, Todd Graves' first encounter with Mo Norman came at one of Mo's legendary exhibitions. And like everyone who ever got a chance to witness the genius at work, Graves will never forget it. But when you see Mo um, actually hitting a golf ball, and granted, I'd played with a lot of great players throughout my life, it was just remarkable on the, uh, the, the sound of the golf ball was the first thing you recognized, was just the incredible sound of the ball just consistently coming off the face with just this crisp, piercing, just contact. Mm-hmm. And then you see this ball, the ball flight was just so consistent and pure and it came out of the same window and the flight of the golf ball and the the accuracy of course as graves notes there's still an important difference between ball striking and managing one's way around a golf course you watch the pga tour you watch these guys on tour they're good golfers but ball striking is kind of a a different animal on its own you know the the efficiency of of a body to strike a golf ball the way mo was striking it is certainly immediately recognizable and I'd, and I'd played with guys, you know, shooting 64 is one thing, but hitting a golf ball consistently in the same pattern over and over and over again with this efficient motion, looked almost machine-like, mm-hmm. was exactly what I was seeing with Mo. Actually, Mo may have hit the golf ball even better than a machine. Later in his life, when hitting balls for Titleist reps with a launch monitor for the first time, he was said to have hit several balls so perfectly there was zero spin. That was something the company's test robots couldn't even do. Graves says seeing Mo's mesmerizing ball striking re-energized the struggling tour pro who had spent the previous few years unsuccessfully working with famed swing instructors like Hank Haney and David Ledbetter. Although Graves never made it big as a tour pro, he was soon taken under Norman's wing. Eventually given the nickname Little Mo, Graves, who runs the Graves Golf Academy in Oklahoma City, has been studying and teaching Norman's swing for more than a quarter century. The conventional golf swing is a very is, is complicated. It's over to me. It's overcomplicated. They've got to get a, a, a simpler address position that helps mm-hmm. them get the impact. That's mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Mo's golf swing starts out in a position that makes it easier to get to impact. That in a nutshell, mm-hmm. because what's the most important part of a golf swing? The moment of contact, right? And if you can repeat the moment of contact with a square face that gets the ball going straight, you're going to be a better golfer. Period. So Mo's swing achieves that at the address. So master the address position. It's Mo's address position that stands out even to the untrained eye. He took a wide stance with his legs perfectly straight while extending his arms and keeping them on line with the shaft. 
Then he set the club about a foot and a half behind the ball. Norman did that to take out a solid chunk of the backswing, leaving even less room to make a mistake. And as Graves discovered years later by using 3D sensors, Moe eliminated as much as two-thirds of the body's upper rotation by doing that. As Graves discovered, there was always a method to Moe's madness, even if Moe couldn't always find the exact words to explain. He was very tuned in to that intuitive side, which, you know, I, I gotta tell you, that's the genius. That, that is the genius that if we could all get a little more intuitive with it, it might really help all of us. You know, it, it makes so much sense. While not well-versed in biomechanic lingo, Mo found the perfect phrase to describe his swing. I have the feeling of greatness, he would often say. I'm the only golfer in the world who's got the feeling of greatness. The only one living. Feeling of greatness, right here. Oh, is that pure? It's a feeling Graves has attempted to pass along to some 4,000 students. And he notes there has been a renewed interest in Mo's single plane swing now that Bryson DeChambeau has become a PGA Tour star. I'm thankful for Bryson because he's, he's highlighting one thing that maybe he doesn't even talk about that much that Mo really talked about a lot is that a golf swing is a, is a summation of uh, the body's positioning. So to get benefit from most swings, you got to have it all. You got to, you got to dive into, you got to go full in. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to take a wider stance or I'm just going to put my arms in line or I'm just going to grip it like Mo gripped it. it I've never, I mean, you might get some help from that, but that's really not going to give you the full benefit of the biomechanical solution that Mo's swing really was. Seeing Mo in person was enough to convince David Owen, an avid weekend golfer, to give it a try. For a long time, I think there were elements of it in my swing. And there, especially, I think I would be willing to go back to it and work, if I could work with somebody like Graves. I thought, especially in the short game, this very simple... Uh, you know, if you, you picture yourself hitting your golf ball kind of at an angle with a hammer, mm -hmm. it's 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 a lot simpler. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was a really good way to hit chip shots. And if you're wondering if Mo could chip and putt, well, again, his record of wins and course records speaks for itself. Although Mo Norman never became a household name in the U.S. during his prime. His notoriety spread for a couple reasons in his 50s, from Owen's cover story in 1995 to his connection to Natural Golf, a company that taught most swing and sold golf clubs catered to it. That partnership finally gave Norman some financial security, as did an act of generosity from Titleist CEO Wally Uline, who offered to pay Mo $5,000 per month for the rest of his life as payback for the decades that Mo had played their equipment. Uh, I walked the PGA show with him the year that Titleist gave him the, the uh, $5,000 kind of reverse scholarship uh, while you line with Titleist did that. And I think he finally felt that he was recognized for, um, you know, the, the accomplishments, but just, just as a person and, and people saw him. So I think he really, really recognized that and, and he felt good about that. David Owen said Norman seemed content in their interactions and agrees the recognition mattered to Mo especially coming from a golf community that had shunned him earlier in his life. Mo Norman may have never won a major, but he still managed to carve out a special place in golf history. He definitely felt the respect of other players. You know, when the photographs, I think we ran a photograph in the magazine of, of all these, he was, he was hitting golf balls and there were all these, you know, the stars of the tour standing around watching him do it. Um, so he, and that, 
you know, that lit him up. And uh, he liked that. He liked performing for people. And I think he felt acknowledged. So I think he was he didn't die in obscurity. He sort of died it was in a lot of ways. He was as he was really finally acknowledged, felt that knew that he was acknowledged. And um, he, he'd done all these things and, they, and he knew that they were appreciated. It was even enough to get the attention of a SoCal teen named Tiger Woods who told golf writer Lorne Rubenstein that he would go to the high school library to study microfiche of Moe's swing. Decades later, and after a series of well-documented swing changes, Woods' ultimate goal remains to own his swing like Norman did. As for Woods, Moe had this to say in that Golf Digest My Shot in 2004. Working on your swing is the greatest joy in golf. Tiger Woods must be having a wonderful time searching for that one little thing he's doing wrong. I wonder when he'll notice it, the way his right heel lifts straight off the ground now instead of coming up and toward his left. His weight shift is terrible right now. That's all. Don't tell him. It'll ruin his fun. So is Mo Norman the greatest ball striker of all time? With guys like Tiger and Lee Trevino in his corner, he certainly has a strong case. And after decades of feeling insecure, Mo armed with the respect of golfers that would have intimidated him earlier, finally settled the debate, at least in his own mind. You gotta know what suits you, and stick to that. This suited me all my life, and I've stuck to it. He became the greatest. Holy gee, what a great feeling. By believing, by, and hard work. Mo Norman didn't have much throughout most of his life, but he had the feeling of greatness, and that was all he needed. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried, with editorial guidance from Sam Wyman. The music from this episode is called Traveling Horse by Lobo Loco. As mentioned, the audio of Norman is from a Canadian broadcasting company feature in 1996. Please subscribe to Local Knowledge on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd greatly appreciate a review.